This is Lead Minister Nathan Pelahowski of RSCC. I just want to welcome you to the RSCC podcast. Here's something I want you to know. I want you to know that you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says that you matter when he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Today I hope this message challenges you and encourages you to take your next faith step. CC, it is awesome to have you here. Hey, can you put your hands together for the worship team? Way to get started, right? Hey, my name is Nathan, and this is the last week before Easter. This is the last message we'll have on this 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to tell you, we saved the best for last. And today, it's, it's, you're not going to leave probably feeling good, but this is a message that we need to hear. It's a message that leads us up to what we're going to celebrate next week. And next week, speaking, is Easter. And what we're going to do is we're going to do one big service. And I know it's a little different than we typically do, but we think it's awesome that on Easter, we have the facility where we can come together as one big church family and worship and celebrate the resurrection. So that's what we're going to do at 10 o'clock. Now, there are going to be a lot of people in here, so if you want your assigned seats, your rows, you might want to get here a little early, right? We don't want any fighting, because some people in second service, they have the same row as you, you know, and I don't want them to, you know, no rivalry here, so, but check it out. Invite people next week. It's going to be awesome. We got an awesome message plan. We got an awesome service plan for you guys, but today, we're going to continue this series called 30 Pieces of Silver, looking at aspects of our lives or mindsets we have in our lives that maybe we trade in for our faith without realizing it. We talked about the idea that we all have a price, that when that price is met, like Judas, we'll, we'll turn our, our faith in or we'll betray Jesus for that price. And Judas's price was 30 pieces of silver. And we looked at the idea of, you know, status last week. And today we're going to talk about the final one. And it's going to lead us to a place, and it's going to be interesting. We've looked at other people We've looked at Judas, and we've looked at Peter, and we've looked at what Jesus has done. But today, we're going to look at something that Jesus does in one of his final moments before he's arrested. And it's really something that should open our eyes and our hearts. But I want to start today with a question that I saw one of my favorite ministers talk about a couple weeks ago. And it got me thinking. And he said this, if your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? If your life is a commercial... What are you advertising? Now, commercials, you all know what a good commercial is because good commercials tell you what their product are or, or what their product is, and they tell you what they're advertising. So I, I got a couple of companies that are awesome at commercials. The iPhone. You know, when you watch the iPhone commercial, you really never know what in the world's going on, but they always end it with the iPhone and the Apple. Like, man, that's a good commercial. And then there's the next commercial here, and it, it's this. The Dorito, you know, it's the flaming Hot commercial during the Super Bowl. I'm not going to sing you the song, but all these animals were singing, like, one of the best commercials of all time. I'll remember that forever. And, and then there's this commercial. What's this? Geico, y'all know what I'm talking about. When you see that lizard, that talking lizard, you're like, hey, it's, it's car insurance, like 15 minutes or less, right? 15%. 15 minutes or less. And then there's another insurance company that does good. And they say, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two, you know, farmer's insurance. And when you see these commercials, you automatically, something comes to mind. You're like, hey, okay, insurance, insurance. For whatever reason, insurance companies have great commercials. You see the Flaming Hot commercials. You see one of my favorites, the E-Baby, the, you know, the E-Trade Baby. Like, that's what I want Natalie to do so I can quit working, right? To become the E-Trade Baby, right? And, but we see those commercials and all of a sudden they tell us, Hey, that's what they're advertising. Well, in the same capacity, when you're living life and you're making decisions and you're doing things out in the world, you're advertising something. By the way you live, you're advertising something or the way you do things, the way you speak, you're advertising 
something, right? And your life is saying, hey, this is what I'm advertising. And so when it comes to following Jesus or becoming Christ followers, the idea is throughout the Gospels, it's kind of this idea that when people look at us, they can tell, hey, they are someone who follow Jesus. For the disciples, we talked last week, Jesus said, hey, when people look at you, when you're advertising the way you live, they should look at you and they should see that you are someone who's been with me, that you shouldn't look like the rest of the world. So when people look at us, they should say, hey, these are, so, these are people who follow Jesus. And by the decisions we make, by the way we treat people, by the way we spend money, by the way we do things, they should say, hey, I see Nathan, he is, fill in the blank. Don't fill in the blank right now though, right? He's like, hey, Nathan is, Mary is, Tony is, he's advertising something. So that your life is a commercial, you're advertising something. And you could go a thousand different directions with that. You could say, okay, let's talk about this or that. But I want to kind of hone in on one idea as we, we head towards the resurrection. And it's this question. Is if your life is advertising something, if your life is a commercial and you're advertising something, here's what I want to ask. Who is your life advertising is in charge? And husbands, I'm not talking about your wives at home, right? Like, I'm not talking about that, right? But who is your life advertising in charge? Do you live God's way or do you live your way? Do you live God's way or your way? And that's a tough question because there's a little word that gets in the way. Control. So let me ask this. How many of you are control freaks? Love to be in control, right? Nobody loves to be in control here. You're all lying or you're such control freaks that when I ask you to raise your hand, you don't want to raise your hand. Right? And, and so let me ask you, that, let, me, let me preface the question this way. How many of you are sitting next to someone who loves to be in control? Come on now, raise your, yeah, there you go. Right? We love control. We want things to go our way. We want to do what we want to do. At home, we want things to look our way. We want our kids to do what we want to do. Like we love, as Americans, there's something about us that we love the idea of control, that we want to be in control of what happens in life. And you know what I know is so much is out of our control, but we love the, the security of control because control gives us a sense of security, even though we don't really have any security, it gives us that sense. So I'm the oldest of four, um, four siblings. Whitney's the oldest child. We both love control. And so in our marriage, sometimes that clashes. And, and we've worked around that. But recently, we started doing those Hello Fresh meals. And that means Nathan has no longer has, no longer has an excuse that he can't cook. Because all I have to do is follow the recipes. So what happens is Whitney and I love control. Both of us love control. But we cook very differently. I'm an, I, I look at it. I'm, a, I'm an eyeball kind of guy. Okay, that looks like enough. Like, that's cooked long enough. And Whitney's like a, a total, like, measure it to the T, cut it, do exactly what it says. So there's this clash. And so in most of our lives, like, that's how we live. Like, I just want control. I want control. I want control. The problem is, here's the problem. We're called to be followers of Christ, called to be disciples of Christ. The idea of being a disciple means you're a follower, that you follow a teacher. And if you're a follower and if you're a disciple, and very, by the definition of those words simply means you're no longer in control. You're no longer making decisions. You're no longer the one wh whose plan you're following. And what happens is, and, and this whole series has led up to this point, everything we've talked about in this series can be summarized in, we want to be in control. And what happens is we struggle to give up control. And what happens is it destroys our faith. 
We struggle so much with control that it destroys our faith. It gets in the way of our faith. It, it keeps us from growing. It keeps us from listening to God and hearing God through reading his word and scripture because all of a sudden we'll go to Google and we'll type in verses that kind of, uh, kind of make us feel good or look, you know, give us the information we're looking for instead of what it actually says. So we struggle to give up control and it destroys our faith. So what we're going to look at today is Jesus is going to take us to a master class on control. He's going to show us what to do in the situation when we feel like we want control, but the situation we're about to face is out of our control. The situation we're about to face is God's will and is greater than my, my will. And as we do this, I'm going to say, let's, I'm going to ask us to do this. I'm going to ask us to evaluate areas in your life where your desire, your desire for control has become stronger than your desire to do God's will. So I want you to think about that. Your desire for control has become stronger than your desire to do God's will. So I'm going to take you to the Garden of Gethsemane today. And this is right after the Last Supper. We talked about the Last Supper. Judas has gone and betrayed, you know, betrayed Jesus. He already traded Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. And now Jesus is going to isolate himself to an area called the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to take his disciples with him. And in that garden is going to be some of his final moments before he's arrested some of his final moments before he's going to head to his cross, some of the final moments that we actually get to hear some of his teachings or lesson from him before the cross. So let's check it out today in Matthew 26, and this is what it says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began, important word, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to him, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus knows the gravity of the situation. He knows what's about to happen. And he takes his disciples, there's now 11 of them, and, and they go to this isolated place, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's believed to be on the Mount of Olives. It, it, it's believed to be in an olive garden. It's an isolated area, probably an area he's gone to pray before. And he takes his disciples with him. They sit, and they're supposed to sit there and keep watch, and then he, takes, he does what he does often throughout the Gospels. Every once in a while, he takes Peter and James and John, the, the disciples that he's closest with, and he takes them with him. He says, hey, listen, there, there's something going on. In there, you know, I feel this heaviness. I want to be with you guys in my final moments before I'm arrested. Will you just sit here, stay awake while I pray? So he starts praying to God. As he starts praying, we, we read these words. We'll just highlight it again. It says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So something happens while he's praying to God. And we know it's happened as he's praying, as he's talking to the Father, because the word began. He began to be sorrowful. He began to feel this way. He didn't start that way, but he began to feel this way. And so many scholars believe that, that God spoke to him or he saw something. And as he was praying, he became sorrowful. And that word in the Greek is horrified. It's so horrified, meaning like it's something you've never experienced before. The worst type of emotional pain you can feel is what Jesus is feeling. And, and Luke, the other gospel that talks about this, he says it this way. He, he prayed earnestly and, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So what Jesus is feeling, what he's began to feel is causing him to sweat blood. 
And it's a real condition that can happen. And so here's Jesus, the same Jesus that calms the storms, the same Jesus that walks on water, the same Jesus that cast out demons, and the same Jesus that just raised Lazarus from the dead not that long ago is now in a garden, and he feels horrified, he feels troubled, he feels sorrowful to the point of death where he's sweating blood. And this is where the Bible is so cool, and we've got to connect the Bible. Remember the location is Gethsemane. And it's in, it's in the Mount of Olives, and it literally is an olive garden. So at this garden, and what they would do at this garden is, you know, it would be an, they would squeeze olives because Gethsemane means an olive press. And what you would do with the olive press is you would squeeze the olives to get olives oil. So it's this symbolic moment that Jesus is in this garden, the, you know, the garden of an olive, olive press where it's squeezing and you squeeze, you squeeze, you squeeze, and out of the olive comes oil. This garden literally becomes a spiritual press for Jesus. So this garden is the place where Jesus is feeling this intense pressure that is squeezing him and squeezing him and squeezing him and squeezing him and causing anxiety, causing sorrow, causing him to be mortified and horrified. So this is, this is a big moment. And this is before the cross. So like, what is going on that's causing this? And so we started, I started doing some research on this. And we, there's many different things that they think was going on. It's a combination of all these. One, he probably saw for the first time what it physically was going to look like to be killed on the cross. For the first time, maybe he physically realized how beaten and broken his body was going to be. If you've ever seen the Passion of Christ, you know, think of that. Nail is going to be driven through right here, you know, that holds you up in, in your feet. And it's going to, and he's going to be beaten. He's going to be flogged. He, he maybe saw that. He probably saw for the first time the weight of what sin was really going to bring, the death that it was really going to bring. But my favorite thing that I read this week from scholars and some commentaries is that they said this. And this is what caused him the most anxiety. Up to this point, he's enjoyed perfect eternal union and communion with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus has gone through in his life and his ministry, they were a union. They they went through it together. But now what Jesus is going to have to face on the cross, he's going to have to go through alone. And that's why on the cross, you know, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the belief is that in some moment on the cross that Jesus had this isolation moment from God. So for the first time in his life, he sees the weight of that. Minister J.D. Greer says it this way, and I wanted to get this right. He says, in that moment, Jesus glimpsed an eternity in hell for us because that is the essence of what hell is, complete abandonment by God. So he sees this, and he sees this overwhelmingness the weight of sin, the physicalness that's going to happen to him. So he sees the, the physical part, the emotional part of everything, and then the spiritual part of, of being isolated from God for however long. And, he, and this is waiting down on him. So what does he do in this moment? He goes to his father. And in verse 39, it, it continues. He says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, father, in Mark, it's translated in the gospel of my father, but it's this, this idea, Abba. And Abba is a relational father, a daddy. So it's, it's relational. It's like, Father, if it's possible. Notice, notice the order of what he says and how he says it. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. 
So he, he sees this, this moment, this moment of hor- he's horrified, he's troubled, and he's just seeing what's about to happen to him. And what does he do? He, the first thing he does, he goes to his father. He says, Father, I know we have this plan. I know that I'm here to save humanity. I want to save humanity. But if there's any other way, if there's another way besides the cross, if there's another way to do this, is there, is there a plan B? If there's a plan B, God, I want to save humanity, but if there's a plan B, if there's another way to do it, Let's do it. And then he says a little phrase. He says, may this cup be taken from me. That's a weird phrase. Cup? May this cup be taken from me? And and so what I want to encourage you to do, whenever you're in the Bible, and sometimes you read things like, may this cup be taken from me. I've never heard anybody say that, right? So you got to, what does this mean? What what is this, this cup? May this cup be taken from me? Because it doesn't seem to fit. What does he mean by take this cup? Take this cup from me. So let's talk about it. All right? And so I, I, we went into this, and what we're about, I'm about to show you is a lot, of, a, a lot of theologians and scholars and commentary information. So this cup, and this is where the Bible, again, is so amazing. The cup is a powerful picture, often throughout the Old Testament, of the wrath and judgment of God. And an example would be from the book of Isaiah in chapter 51, where it says this, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You have drank from the hand of the Lord he cu- he cup of his, his cup of his wrath, yet you have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger so here's this imagery and the imagery is this that there's a cup and it's a, it's the imagery of our life and our cup and every time we sin every time we rebel every time we we do something against god that cup is filled with with judgment that cup is filled with the sin that cup is filled with the wrath so god's promise throughout the old testament that was one day someone would have to drink that wrath that someone would drink that cup and throughout the old testament god would pour out that cup that wrath of judgment that wrath of rebellion that wrath of you know your sin onto the israelites and you saw that over and over again but god had a bigger redemptive plan that he wanted to ultimately happen so the idea is that every single human of human, every single one of us, yes, you individually, but every single one of us, our sin, our rebellion has filled this cup with God's wrath. And so Jesus' mission, God's redemptive plan was for Jesus to drink the cup. So it really comes down to this. It's either Jesus drinks the cup or you drink the cup. And God's plan, his redemptive plan, was that God, Jesus would come to this world he would live this sinless life. He'd be fully God and fully human. And ultimately, the, when the time was right, which is coming into this Passion Week, was right when the time was right, and right, the time is right in the garden, that Jesus is going to drink the cup. That Jesus is going to, it's the gospel, that Jesus is our substitute on the cross. So Jesus is going to take the wrath of God. He's going to drink the cup. And that is probably what he saw that horrified him. That he was going to drink this cup. So he says, God, if it is possible, and, I, and some people use this to say, well, how can Jesus say that? How, how could, you know, didn't Jesus know? But we got to remember, God, and I can't just, I, I, I won't give this answer just, but Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully human. And his human side, he, he saw what was about to happen. His human side saw what was gonna, he was going to experience, and he, and he leads to praying this. Let this cup pass for me, but only if it's possible. Let this cup pass for me, but only, only, God, 
if it's possible. Father, if there's, a, if there's another way to save humanity, if there's another way we can get this done, let's do it. God answers Jesus' prayer that night. But it wasn't the answer he was looking for. Imagine, he says, son, there's no other way. This is plan A, this is plan B, this is the only way. And Jesus said, okay, I'll drink the cup. And Jesus loves us so much that he's willing to drink our cup. He's willing to take the wrath that we deserve, that sin brings, that, that rebellion brings, and drink it in our place. And what we see here, so if we make this connection to us, what we see here, and while we started talking about control, is we see Jesus letting go of control. He sees this moment that he's about to experience and every, his human nature wants to take control of it. But he says, God, if it's possible. And God says, it's not. So Jesus says, okay, you're in control. And I think we find ourselves in situations, not where Jesus is, but we find ourselves in situations in life where it's tough, it's difficult, it's painful, and we f- pray, remove this cup, figuratively, remove this cup, remove this situation. The situation could be one day your spouse comes home and your marriage has been rough, but you think you can fix it, but then they just tell you, hey, it's over. Maybe you go to the doctor and you thought you were healthy, you thought everything was fine, but all of a sudden you get a diagnosis that you're like, that rocks your world. Maybe you get a phone call, something happens to a kid, or you get a text from a kid and it rocks your world. Maybe you've been trying to have kids for a long time and you just keep getting told no. Or maybe like the great theologian Kenny Chesney says, don't blink because you might just miss your babies, your babies growing up to be moms and dads like mine did. And before you know it, you know, the love of your life, however he says it, your better half of 50 years is lying in bed and you, and you pray, God, take me instead. Maybe you're just in a tough moment and you want that cup to be removed and the cup is the situation you're going through, the feelings you're going through. And everything in us in those moments, everything in us when we're going through pain, everything in us when things aren't going our way is to take control. We want to take control and say, God, remove this cup, remove this situation. And that's where Jesus says, God, if it's possible, remove the situation. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I, I, I don't want to face this. I, I want to do what you want me to do. But God, this looks like it's going to, my humanness, it looks like it's going to be so painful, God. So if there's any other way. And what we see from Jesus here is he's, he said, God answered, said, no, there's no other way, son. You have to do this. This is the plan. And he does it. And what we see here, and this is what I want you to take home with you, is that Jesus is showing us, don't allow your desire for control. Don't allow your desire for control to be stronger than God's will in your life. Don't allow your desire for control. Don't allow your desire to get through the situation, to get through the pain, to get through whatever you're going through, to be stronger than God's will. And that's exactly what Jesus is going through in the garden. He's like, God, I I want something else to happen if it's possible. Yes, I want to save humanity, but is there an easier way? Is there there a more comfortable way? God, I, I want to be in control. But God's saying, no. It's my will. So Jesus says, okay, God, uh, we'll do it. This is, Father, we're going to do it. We're going to do what we've come here to do. 
and he's in the garden and, and he's praying and it's tough and this is tough to do not allowing your desire for control to be stronger than God's will that is tough and it's difficult and Jesus is in the garden and it doesn't mean that he doesn't feel the pain because he does he says that I feel so much sorrow to his friends he's like I feel so much sorrow that I feel like I can die I'm horrified he goes to God and said, God, this is what's on my heart. Here, here's what I'm going through. And it doesn't mean that we can't have doubts. It doesn't mean we can't have feelings because that's what Jesus does. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus feels all those human emotions. In Hebrews, it says we have a high priest who can empathize and sympathize with us. Jesus understands what we go through in pain and tough situations because he's been there. But what we've got to notice is here, his prayer doesn't end with remove this cup. His prayer does not end there. For most of us, that's where our prayer ends. God, do what I want you to do. But Jesus' prayer doesn't end there. Jesus' prayer ends with what, what I call the nine words that save the world. Yet, that's one, right? You can count them for yourself, but yet, not as I will, but as you will. Those are nine words that save the world save the world because before there ever was a cross there was a moment in the garden where our, our savior of the world hit his knees and said God remove this cup and Jesus had this moment a hinge moment but his prayer doesn't end there it's so beautiful it says father not as I want but as you want and this press of Gethsemane as one person put it pressed out perfect and pure obedience out of Jesus when you're pressed down when you're pressed in your, your moment what's your life advertising what, what's pressing out of you Jesus moment here pressed out perfect and pure obedience it says God as painful as it's going to be as hard as this is going to be not as I will but as you will. Then it continues. We, we see a little bit more here. We're not, we're, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to talk about all these verses, but we've got to read it, right? He says, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Imagine this, right? Like, you know, you're, you're like, you're, wanting to, you're going through an awful thing. You're feeling all this pain. You're with your best friends. You're with the people who are supposed to be awake and have your back, and they're sleeping. He's like, could you, could you men keep watch with me for an, one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's like, Come on, Peter, get it together, man. And then he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's like, I'm gonna drink the, I'm gonna drink the wrath if it's your will. And when he came back, he found them sleeping again, right? He's like, they, they fall asleep again because their eyes were heavy, right? Like some of you right now, your eyes are heavy. Don't fall asleep, right? And he says, So he left them and went away once more. So three times and prayed the third time saying the same thing. He went to God three times, three times saying, God, if it's possible, if it's possible, if it's possible, take this cup. If it's not, I'll drink this cup, I'll drink this cup. And every time he said, God, if it, is it possible? He came back to the understanding it wasn't possible. So he said, okay, I will drink it. And what I, I love what a professor told me about the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is where it's so cool. He's like, the Bible can be summarized in the two gardens, or the gospel can. And here, here's, this, here's the two gardens, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. So in Eden, where it all started, Adam took a fall. Took a fall to sin. In Gethsemane, what did Jesus do? 
took a stand, took a stand against the, the, the desire to be in control, took a stand for the desire to do what he wanted to do like Adam didn't do. God sought Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam sinned and God had to go find him because he was trying to hide from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus, Jesus sought God. He went to God. He was feeling away and he took it to the Father. In Eden, Satan led Adam to a tree that brought death. In Gethsemane, Jesus went to a tree, or is going to go to a tree, that brings us life. Jesus, right here, became the redemptive plan through God. Jesus is the new Adam, as Scripture calls it in the New Testament. But he took a stand against sin. He lived a life that we could not live, and he did not sin. He took a life, and he was tempted like we are tempted, but he did not sin. He did not give him the temptation. In the moment of weakness, unlike Adam, he went to God and he sought out the Father because he was fully God and fully human. And if he was going to be fully human, he had to learn to be obedient and, and, and righteous. He had to be obedient to God's will. And then he went to the tree, which would have been the cross. And he took on the sin that was paid for, that was our sin. He drank the cup that we were meant to drink. And he drank it for us. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And we're going to look at what happens after that. But Jesus is giving us a master class 2,000 years plus after the Garden of Gethsemane of what it means to live in God's will. And he gives us a master class that the desire to follow God's will in your life has to be stronger than our desire for control. And that's difficult and that's hard. It may be the most challenging thing you do in your faith to give up control and follow God's will because that means you're not the one driving. You're never driving anyways. It's just a sense of control. It means you're not the one who's an ultimate say and it means things won't always go your way. Well, that's hard for us. And last week I was watching a documentary and you probably think it's boring, but on History Channel on Hulu, there's a show called The Foods That Built America. Right, the foods that built America. Probably no one watched it, but it, I like it. Right, and so it was the episode on fast food. And sorry, Christians, they didn't talk about Chick Fil A. Okay, Chick Fil A wasn't in there, but it talked about really two companies: McDonald's and Burger King. Now, McDonald's was way before its time, and McDonald's started spreading across the country. And what they worked on is that every McDonald's that you went in, the, the founder, whatever, I can't remember his name, that every McDonald's you went in across America, you ordered the same thing, and everything looked the same way. And here's the idea, that when you went there and ordered a cheeseburger, whatever was on the cheeseburger, you got. No taking things off. And then Burger King was their competitive, competitor, and Burger King started in Miami. And in Miami, you know, it was a little bit different. So they started a little smaller and, and they started creating a burger. And Burger King becomes the first burger, that, uh, you know, the fast food place to give their burger a name. They call it the Whopper, okay? The greatest fast food sandwich of all time. Don't argue with me about that, right? The Whopper. And, and then in 1973, they created a slogan that changed everything. And it, it kind of starts the root of what we experience now. They came out with a slogan in 1973, which was this. Have it your way. Burger King, right? I don't know the commercial. I wasn't born yet, but have it your way. Have it your way. So all of a sudden, ah, you don't like onions? No worries. You don't like pickles? No big deal. You don't want ketchup? Gotcha. McDonald's operated. We create the burger our way. 
if you don't like it, too tough, right? Take your 15 cents and go elsewhere. 1973, it changed. And all of a sudden, you can go back to the roots of 1973, and you can see this idea of having your way in every major company that tries to sell you a product. You're king. Customer is king. We will bend to what you need because it is have it your way. And some of us have been born since 1973. And we've lived in a world that's told us, have it your way over and over again. And all of a sudden, we start going to church, start having faith, and we have this mindset, have it your way, have it my way, I get what I want. And you start saying, God, I want this done, I want this done, I want this done, on this time frame, in this way, I want this house, this job, blah, 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 I want, I want, I want, I want. And if God doesn't give it to you, all of a sudden, well, God, you must not love me. Oh, God, you must not be real. And Jesus is saying, listen, I, I told you way before 1973, this is how we do it. You hit your knees and, and you say this, it's not have it my way, it's have it his way. This ain't Burger King, people. He's like, it's, it, it doesn't operate like that. It's Jesus says, it's, it's not have it my way. Let's have it his way. And what Jesus is showing us in the Garden of Gethsemane is a lot of things, but he's also showing us how our prayer life should be. And you can go back to the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the Lord's Prayer and he says, God, your will be done, my will be done. But Jesus is saying when you pray, and often through prayer and scripture and reading and praying is how God communicates, and that's how we communicate to God. So when we're praying, we should pray not have it my way, but have it his way. And I love what Greg Laurie says about this. He says, the objective of prayer, this is so cool, the objective of prayer is not to change the objective of God. It, the, sorry. The objective of prayer is not to change God's mind. It's to align our prayer with, with God's will. I know that's a little messed up on the screen there, but it's, the objective of prayer is not to change God's mind or let your will be done. It's to let you align yourself with God's will for your life. So what we should get to is we should get to a point when we look back at our life and we look at this question, we're going to land the plane here. When we look at this question, when we, we say, who is my life advertising is in charge? You're either advertising, I did it my way or I did it God's way. I either said, God, your will be done or I said, God, it's my will be done. And your life is advertising who's in charge every single day. And when we see the Garden of Gethsemane, we should get to the point every day in our lives where we say something like this. God, hear my request, but you know best. I think that's what Jesus did. If I could summarize it in, in Nathan's terms. Father, here's my request. Here's what's on my heart. Here's what I'm going through. Here's even what I want. And that's okay. Take those things to God. Go to God and say, God, here's what's on my heart. He wants us to. The Bible tells us to bring our prayers and petitions to God. Talk to God. Hear my request. Here's what I'm going through. Here's what I'm feeling. God, I, I really wish you would remove this cup. God, I, I hope you change the situation sooner than later. God, it would be awesome if I got this job. God, it would be amazing if I could be a parent. God, it would be, man, I would just really want whatever it is. God, that's my request. That's my heart. And you tell me to talk to you like I'm talking to Father. I'm just telling you what's on my heart. But Father, I know ultimately you know best. So God, what I'm praying is that your will be done. 
that you give me the wisdom to understand what your will is, but also you give me the strength to live out your will. Because that's what Jesus needed too. He needed God's strength to live out God's will for him. God, I want your will to be done in, in my life. You know why we pray God's will be done in our life? Because whether we believe it and whether we see it on this side of heaven or this side of eternity or not, your best life, your best life and my best life is lived in God's will for your life. And everybody's will looks different. And I don't know what God's will for your life is. I don't know what's going to happen to your life by 1130. I don't know what's going to happen in your life next week. I don't know what's going to happen in your life next month, next year, ever. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. But I do know what God's calling you to do, what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. It comes down to four words. God's calling us to let go, let go of our sense of control, let go of our desire to be in charge, let go of our desire for a price, let go for our desire to, to do whatever we want, and know, and know what? And know that he's in control, that he loves you. He's praying us to let go and know. In the garden, Jesus had to let go. Let go of the, the feeling of being horrified. Let go of the temptation that his flesh, his human nature, was tempted to do. And know that God's will for his life was the best, his best will, his best life. And then these verses end with this. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayers. Here comes my betrayer. In moments after this, Jesus will be arrested. He'll be taken to the high priest and religious people first. They will accuse him of blasphemy. They will accuse him of saying things and doing things he never did. They will beat him a little bit. And then knowing that they don't have ultimate control, they will take him into the house of Pilate. And they'll tell Pilate to handle him. Pilate and Jesus will have a conversation. And Pilate says, I don't want anything to do with this. You decide. And then the moment, they have a moment where they could let Jesus go or they have a, a criminal name, you know, a criminal they could decide to let, you know, get crucified or Jesus. And that same crowd that Adam read about saying you know, King, Hosanna, 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 praising Jesus will ultimately yell, crucify, 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 crucify. And they would cheer it. And Jesus would be, you know, sentenced to being crucified. He would carry a cross to the town. And ultimately his body would be beaten and broken, put on a cross. And the world got darker and darkness came. Disciples have fled. His mother's at the foot of the cross. The soldiers mock him, splitting his clothes, splitting lots. And everybody thinks it's over. And Jesus just drank in the full wrath of sin. He's taken on our substitute, our place. The disciples are hiding. Romans are celebrating. Religious people are happy. And it all seemed like Jesus was just another man. But what you know and what I know is that God had another plan. And that the story doesn't end with an empty cup. But to hear that, y'all gonna have to come here at 10 o'clock next week a little bit early, right? <laughs> Let go and know. Let go and know. Let go of your desire to be in control and know that God has a plan and he loves you. And I know for some people that plan 
doesn't go the way God wants it to. And the worship band can come up here. That plan doesn't look the way you thought. But trust me, and know, just know, trust Jesus, that God loves you and has a plan for your life. Maybe for some of you, the plan, the first step in this plan is, is to finally give your life to Christ. Let's not wait another day, another second, because we don't know what's going to happen, because we're not in control, and we're, we're called to repent, to believe, and be baptized. Maybe today is that day. I'm going to pray, and we're going to continue to worship a God who's in control of all seasons, of all situations, at all times. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful that you're a God who loves us, a God who knows us, a God who calls us to let go and know that you're in control. Father, I thank you that Jesus took the wrath so we didn't have to. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today who wants to step into this, this work that Jesus has done for us, this, this gift of grace that Jesus offers us, that Father, if they do so today, we'll be in the back of this room have a conversation about what it means for Jesus to take their wrath so they didn't have to. God, we love you. We're going to continue to praise you, the only king who deserves praise. So your name we pray. Amen. It's been great hanging out with you guys today. I hope that message challenges you and encourages you today. We would love to have you on campus sometime at one of our services at 8.30 or 10.45 on Sunday. Or to find out more information about RSEC, you can always go to the RSEC Family app. Or follow us on any social media platform at RSCC Family. Most of all, remember, you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says you matter. Now go and be blessed.